Stand together for the reading of God's Word, John 13. We're only reading one verse this morning. John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do marvel at your grace and mercy to us. In the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, he who came from heaven to save sinners, we rejoice, O God, that you stoop to save those whom you had made, that you were pleased to save the children of Adam. We thank you, O God, that you have shown us mercy, even as we have been gathered out of the world to this place at this time, to worship you, to hear your word, to be under your word, We pray, O God, that you would bless that which you have appointed, that you would bless by the working of your spirit, both the preaching and the hearing of your word, that Christ will be glorified all in all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we completed chapter 12 and the first half of John's gospel, not half as far as quantity, but in the division and the partitions that are there. Today we enter into the second half of John's Gospel. Having come through uh, what has been often called the Book of Signs, we now find ourselves uh, in John's Gospel, the Book of Passion of our Savior. We find ourselves on Thursday evening. Uh, We're midway through the Feast of Passover. The Feast of Passover, like the other feasts, was uh, lasted for for a period of seven days. Uh, The pinnacle of that feast, of course, would have been the Passover meal. D.A. Carson, uh, in his commentary, reminds us of what we've seen in the first half of John's Gospel, uh, that there's a certain pattern. There's signs, and then those signs or miracles are immediately followed by an explanation of the meaning or the miracle, how it connects. They're not just out there. They're related to, in many cases, to illustrate uh, the teaching or manifest the condition of men's heart. As we move towards Forward into chapters 13 and 17, the order the order's reversed. These chapters cover the Lord's Supper, Jesus' farewell teaching, followed by his high priestly prayer. These are an explanation then of what is to follow, of the mighty miracle, if you will, the sign, Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension and exaltation. On this Thursday evening, several key events took place. The Passover meal... There was an argument about the greatest, followed by Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet. It was foretold by Jesus that Peter would deny him three times that very night before the cock crowed in, that Judas would betray him. In the night then, Jesus and his disciples will go out to the Mount of Olives and enter into prayer. Judas will come then with armed men and betray the Lord Jesus into the hands of wicked men. Peter will deny Christ three times, and then the cock will crow. Jesus will be tried before Pilate and Herod, all before the break of day on Friday. On Friday, Jesus will be led outside the city to the place of the skull and crucified, taken down from the cross, dead, buried in a a borrowed tomb in a garden near at hand belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, all before the sun sets and the Sabbath begins. John 13, this verse, this first verse, is at the center of this transition. 
to the events of the Passion. John's words here look back as well as look forward. We have taken the key phrase from verse 1 as the title of the sermon. He, that is Jesus, loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Many of you have found John's gospel to be a book to turn to when wanting a fresh look at our Savior. And you are well to do so. Or to be reminded of all that he is and all that he has done. Many of us have many times recommended to family, to friends, to people we meet, that if they can take up the scripture, read the gospel according to John. It's a wonderful place to begin. It is here that we see and hear so much of Jesus as Logos, as the word of God made flesh. John 13 through 16 that we are entering into is the longest discourse of Jesus in the scriptures. It exceeds that even of the Sermon of the Mount. There's material here that is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. The theologian, a German by his name, F.W. Krumacher, sees in the events of John, John records, John's record, a progression in the temple sanctuary, beginning with the outer court which is presented in Jesus' teaching in the upper room, followed by entry into the holy place with its sacred objects, which Krumacher connects, or sees as connected to Jesus' arrest and his trial. And finally, entering into the most holy place, the holy of holies where God dwells above the mercy seat, and this being directly tied to Jesus' crucifixion, the spilling of his blood to atone for the sins of his people. And so we take it up. Jesus knew that his hour had come. We use four main headings in the possessive. Jesus, Jesus' hour had come. Jesus' particular love for his own. Jesus' past love for his own. And fourthly, finally, Jesus' abiding love for his own. We begin with Jesus' hour had come. James Montgomery Boyce, commentary of the previous generation, comments that as a child of God, we feel as though we're walking on holy ground as we enter into this portion of God's word. We hear the voice of Jesus leading us, teaching us. There's been much teaching here of our new position in Christ and how it is that we stand in the world, though not of the world. It is here that Jesus teaches us about heaven and the new commandment and the Holy Spirit and our union with Christ, the coming of the Holy Spirit. There's so much here we find that follows. And as he does so, John says, that is John the Apostle, says that because Jesus knew that his hour had come, remembering, remember how it happened that at the arrival of the Greeks, seeking Jesus seemed to be key to Jesus to understand that his hour had come. And we heard that discourse in the previous chapter, his finally public address, because the hour, his hour, had come. We've commented on this unique reference of time, his hour, not being used in the ordinary sense of 60 minutes in one particular time, but rather an hour as a season or a period of time when the Son of Man will fulfill his role as the Redeemer of his people. This hour, this mighty hour, was when the great battle that began in the Garden of Eden between the seed of the woman 
and the serpent or seed of Cain would be settled once for all. Although even as we say that, let us understand that the outcome of that battle was never in question. Remember the words of Genesis 3.15, God speaking of the hour that we now find ourselves. Listen to the language, the certainty of it. It's not a question. He shall bruise your head. He's addressing the serpent, Satan. He, that is Christ, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head. We could say, whereas you shall only bruise his heel. Jesus is the one in view here. There's certainty in these words. The outcome is foreordained by God. It will certainly come to pass. John says that Jesus knew that his hour had come before the feast of the Passover. Notice John writing, now before the feast of the Passover. You know, the, and the threshold, we're in that week, but John is he's providing some context. Before the feast began, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. We would see that would be the context of the previous chapter, the arrival of the Greeks and his discourse and explanation of what is to soon to befall as he must be laid down as a seed and die that he might bring forth an abundance of fruit to the praise and the glory of God. Jesus knew. The feast of the Passover was a seven-day period in the month of Nisan. The Passover was to be eaten on the 15th of Nisan. It is in this context, then, that John is led by the Spirit to communicate what we find in these verses leading up to the washing of Jesus' disciples' feet. Notice, that's what's right before us, as John will make some other comments and give the setting and the situation of the room. But John gives us this explanation at this time, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so we consider then Jesus' particular love for his own. That's the language. He loved his own. To some degree, I'm going to follow Rick Phillips. He's a PCA pastor, the chief editor of a commentary series, The Reformed Expositor. I'm following him at points here. What jumps out at you in verse 1 as we hear it, particularly knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What's, what's the theme there? It's love. It's the love of God, the love of God in Christ Jesus, the love of Christ for his people. Indeed, most of you will understand that John, uh, as one apostle, is often referred to as the apostle of love. He's the one who celebrates and communicates the love of God in Christ Jesus to his people. John's first epistle is filled with this theme of love. This is one of the things that makes John's gospel so attractive, isn't it? We see the love of God. For God so loved the world. God loved that which was unlovely, that which was in sin, that which was in rebellion. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now John says that Jesus' love was for his own who were in the world. These are those who the Father has sent his son into the world to save. It's to these that God has given his son. He's, in a sense, generally given himself, given his son to the world, but he's given himself particularly to his people. There's a particular people. They're named by God from before the foundation of the world. 
These are the elect of God, chosen by the Father in Christ Jesus before time began. God so loved the world that he gave. And Jesus loves the world as well. But there is a love which Jesus has for his own that differs from the love which he has for the world. Think of it this way with me. You can have a man. He's a father. He'd be a loving man. He would love children. He would encounter children. He would love children, any child that he would encounter. But he has a particular love and a special love for his own children. Even as a man may be loving and kind to other women, but he has a particular love for his wife. He seeks her out. He searches her out. He, he makes a distinction in his love for her as compared to all others. Dr. Montgomery Boyce is helpful here when he says, quote, God has done some things for all men, but on the other hand, God has done all things for some men. Listen to that again. God has done some things for all men, but on the other hand, God has done all things for some men. There's a particular love of God. There's the electing grace of God. And in what follows in these next chapters, we see Jesus' all-saving love is for his own, his own people, even as John records it here, having loved his own. It's a particular love. First, we see in this that Jesus chose you. We've seen this earlier in the gospel. We'll see it in chapter 15 as well. When Jesus is answering a question, he says, did, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus, as the bridegroom, chooses his bride. He sets his particular affection and love upon a particular people. His church, the bride. Jesus came into the world to purchase his bride, to redeem to himself a people by his blood. He came to make atonement on the cross, to redeem a particular people, his own, out of the bondage of sin, those who were dead in sin, to make them alive unto God in salvation that he gives. The Apostle Paul also declares the same thing in 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom is in you? Whom you have from God, and you are not your own, you are bought with a price. That's the love of God. That's the love of Christ for his own. Secondly, as a sinner, Jesus, um, uh, as a, a sinner becomes one of Jesus' own because the Father gives them to his Son. We heard this in John chapter 6. In the midst of the discourse about being the living bread, Jesus said there, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. These verses confirm what we have already declared, the biblical doctrine of election. God appointed a particular people to receive salvation by being united by faith to Christ alone so that his saving work speaks for them, his own people. Here Paul again confirming the same thing, that it's the Father who selects. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Paul writes, just as he chose us in him, that is in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame, before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. 
It is for this reason that Jesus prays as he does in John 17. Because of the reality of the Father giving to my people, Jesus praying to the Father says, They were yours. You have given them to me. We've just heard two reasons why it is that Jesus has a particular people. Christians, as we call them. These two reasons centered on who? We begin with Christ, and then we talked about the Father. So we see the Father and the Son. Would we expect something more? Would, would the Holy Spirit also be involved in this giving, this, this choosing, this divine appointment of who these own are? Well, certainly it would come as no surprise that that's the case. We have been regularly reminded that our salvation is the work of the Trinity. We are Jesus' own. Why? Because we are born from above, born of the Spirit. This is what Jesus told Nicodemus. You must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that is sent from the Father through the Son into our hearts to do the work of redemption, to do the work of regeneration. It is the Spirit who comes and acts in us and upon us. Those whom the Father has given to the Son, those whom the Son has purchased with His blood, the Spirit is sent from the Father through the Son to those so that we are united to Christ. Paul says the same thing, Romans 8.15. But you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. What a marvelous truth. We are Christ's own, as John writes here. We are his own because of the Father's will, because of the Son's will, because of the Spirit's will. We see our God, three persons in one, yet one God, acting in unity and in concert for our redemption. We are his own because it's the will of our triune God. Not according to the will of man, but according as it is the will of God. I'll just consider some applications. My my dear sisters and brothers, can there be a greater position or a greater possession than being Jesus' own? Is there any greater gift than to be this particular people, a peculiar people, a people belonging to the Lord in Christ Jesus? Charles Spurgeon calls us to celebrate that we are his own sheep, his own disciples, his own friends, his own brethren, the members of his body. What a title to wear. His own. His own. There's little... There's nothing more that you could have than this, than to be Christ's own. Think of this. Jesus says to you as his own, he says, my name is written on them. And he says, their names are written on my hands. When Jesus hung on the cross, it was for his own. He died for their sins. He suffered and bled and died to redeem his own, his own particular people. This is the beauty of the gospel. We sing in one of those old hymns. I belong to Jesus, and he belongs to me. What a precious truth and a great promise. Oh, my friends, celebrate this truth in this season, yea, in all seasons, when people are shopping and trying to figure out what to get for this person or that person, or some are making their list and make sure everybody knows what they want. My friends, there is nothing greater that you can have or desire than to be Christ's own, to belong to him, and for him to belong to you, to say, he's my redeemer. He's my savior. He died for my sins. He purchased me unto God. So John sets it, that we are his own particular people. But Jesus' past love is demonstrated here for his own. 
Listen to verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own. Some of you children are old enough, you've studied verb tenses, and you'll recognize that's past tense. Having love is something he's been doing. It's in the past that he's been doing this. He's loved his own. This statement looks backwards as well as forward because it goes on. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's looking forward. And, of course, said in the middle is the present reality. Jesus loves us in the past. He loves us in the present. He loves us in the future. How is it that Jesus has loved his own in the past? Remember how John got, John's gospel opens? John uh, very much uh, cast our eye, looking back, looking back to the opening words of Genesis 1, when John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was uh, with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Surely John intends for us to think of the opening chapters of Genesis as God gave it to Moses and it was recorded that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. When God spoke, Christ was the word that went forth, the power of the Holy Spirit to bring it about. Jesus was in the beginning and apart from him, nothing was made. When God made man in the beginning, he made them male and female after his own image, or in his image. And God's love is displayed in this, that in mankind, he made us at the pinnacle of all creation. It was mankind alone that he formed out of the dust of the earth and breathed the breath of life into man. God displayed this unique love that he has for mankind, and that he made us for communion and fellowship with the living God of heaven. We alone can have that communion and fellowship with God, the creator, that we can comprehend who he is and what he's done and what he's doing, and that we can walk with him and fellowship with him and have communion with him, even as you see Adam and Eve do in the garden before the fall. God made man to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's a remarkable thing. That's the love of God displayed, and Christ was there doing this. John tells us also that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus' love brought Him out of heaven to the earth, coming in our likeness, taking even to Himself the form of a servant. So great was His love. For man, He has loved us in the past. He's loved us from before the foundation of the earth. He's loved us in creation as He spoke, as the Word of God came forth and created man. His love compelled Him then to come forth from heaven, to leave the glory and the splendor of the throne room of God, to come and to stoop, to take up our humanity. Think about that God who formed us with his hands and breathed life into us, that God came and dwelt and took to himself that humanity. He loved us in the past. Furthermore, he came to dwell under the law. For the children of Adam were in rebellion against God. They had sinned in Adam and fell with him in that first transgression. Jesus came as the second Adam to live in our humanity, 
to live under the law, to live in this world with all the effects from sin and the curse for sin that is upon the world. Jesus willingly came. He came because he loved his people. He was willing to do this. He came and he demonstrated his love to men as he walked amongst them for three years, particularly those men that are in the upper room with him. He loved them, but it's not just them. He's loved his people in the past. Jesus' love invites us to be involved in his particular work. We, we see him going forth calling men. Uh, some of those men were fishers of men, telling them that he would make them fishers of men. He's inviting them. He's invited his people, the church, down through the ages to be involved in his work. It's entrusted to us to proclaim to the nations the glorious truth of the gospel, to announce the glory and the majesty of Christ, the, the gift of God, giving his son to the sons of Adam. Jesus loved us in the past to involve us in his work. We can't overlook, we dare not overlook the unique relationship of Jesus with the twelve. How he made himself known to them. How he dealt with them out of a heart of love. Remember how stubborn they are? How hard of heart, how stiff neck, how slow of understanding. Have I been with you so long and yet you still do not believe? Oh, you of little faith. Jesus' love for them, he stayed with them. And so it is with us. When you hear those words of Jesus to the apostles, we're not different than them. And yet Christ abides with us. He stays with us. He's lovingly called us to follow him. And he teaches us. He bears patiently with us. He walks with us in our weakness and our stumbling of belief, even unbelief. Yes, he took us when we were, what, children, and he has led us by the hand, even unto this day. Jesus has loved us in the past. Oh, my dear brothers and sisters, look back over your years with Jesus. Whether there be few or many, look and see the faithful love that the Savior has demonstrated to you. We don't dwell on our rebellion and sin and unbelief. Satan likes to drag that up and throw at us. But it is a reality, and and we do remember it. And you know what? Jesus has continued to love us. Through the past, he has loved us in the past. Jesus' love for us was from before the foundation of the world, and he has proved it to us over and over, even unto this day. Do not doubt him. Rest in this certain truth. Jesus has loved you, and he does love you. You're his own precious lamb. But there's more. Jesus abiding love for his own in the present and forward. Again, verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The events that will soon unfold for Jesus will envelop not only himself, but his friends, his disciples, those who have gathered with him in the upper room, that his hour having come, it's an hour of darkness, indeed a literal darkness as well as a spiritual darkness that will cover the face of the earth. It will be dark as midnight in the middle of the day. For the forces of evil are soon to rush upon him, thinking that they will have their triumph in their finest hour. And Jesus is mindful of the twelve, particularly the eleven, Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip, 
Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. They're about to face a dark hour. Jesus has announced that his hour has come. They have no comprehension. They have no understanding of what that means. What is about to fall upon them is beyond their their wildest imagination. They're thinking Jesus is going to triumph in in conquering Rome and casting out those visible physical forces and to deliver them from the bondage of Rome. They're going to see Jesus on a cross, a Roman cross. Yes. He's winning a victory, but they don't understand it. Jesus knows that. And so as John records this, that he loved them to the end. There's, this is a hinge point. What's going to follow? What we're going to take up in these next several chapters is anchored in this. Jesus' abiding love for his men, for his church, for his people. That love that continues. It does not end. Because of this love, the events that took place in that upper room were deliberate. They were intentional. They were specific. They were focused. Jesus was engaged as a shepherd for his sheep to the end then that we find here. He loved them to the end. That phrase in the original language, it can be understood or uh, not necessarily translated, but understood in a number of different ways. It can mean that he loved them perfectly. And that is certainly true. But the best way to understand to the end here is that it's a matter of time. It's in the temporal of sense. Jesus, having loved them all along thus far, Jesus will love them even to the end of his life. The cross is approaching. The cross upon which Jesus died. Jesus will die on that Roman cross because of his own particular love for his own particular people. For this reason, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus, the Son of God, descended from the highest heavens down to the realm of men. He came even down to the earth that he might save those who were on the earth. It was his love, his love for his own that compelled him. A love that remains even to the end. To the end where he sheds his precious blood as an atonement for sinners. He loved his own to the end. When he cried out to his father, into your hands I commit my spirit, Jesus loved his own particular people to the end. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, he still was loving his own particular people to the end. My friends, there have never been days so dark as those 2,000 years ago. That was a dark day. All heaven and earth, as it were, stood still. The angels of glory who were in the presence of God were restrained by the command of God as they see their king who they worship, whoever they do uh, to do his bidding, who they ever sing his praises as they see him drug out, sitting, nailed to a cross. It was a dark time. But of course it was the threshold of the best of times with the resurrection. But the church is also in various places at various times, seen dark days. There have been dark days. There will be dark days. We may see dark days ourselves. There are those of our brothers and sisters of Christ's own particular people who see dark days right now. Jesus loves them to the end. 
He always loves his people. He has from all eternity. And it's for this reason that he came, Emmanuel, God with us. He came to demonstrate his love once more. And he is coming again to gather his people, for he loves us to the end. God is love. This is what he is at all times. It's of the very essence of his being. It's one of his divine attributes that he is love. It's, it's a communicable attribute. Praise God, because we're called to love. But God is love. John writes this in his epistle. God is love. And that's true of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are all equally God and one in their love. God is love. God cannot cease to love his people, for he would have to deny himself to do so. So two things in light of this truth. One, no matter the headlines, no matter what the clouds are that seem to be gathering, God will never leave you or forsake you. No matter your sin, God will never leave you, forsake you. He loves us and he will love you to the end. No matter how far you have strayed, he loves you to the end. Look at the cross and know this. God in Christ Jesus loves you. He will love you to the end, yes, even into eternity. Second thing to know, this great love of God for you, does it stir you up to love him more? We hear the love of God and we marvel and we should. In response, we feel something of our own inadequacy. There's something within me, I think, that's within you. And as we hear this love of Christ, this remarkable, eternal, steadfast love that our God has for us, and we feel in some sense so unworthy, so undeserving, and it's true. And because we have been so loved, we, we know we should love more. And we know how far short our love falls. But indeed... Let us hear of this love and be stirred up. That our prayer would be more love to thee, O Christ. Yes, indeed, more love to thee, O Christ. And indeed, such love for Christ will then lead us to keep his commandments. That's what he says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But in keeping his commandments, it's not in our strength. Because as he has loved us to the end, he will love us throughout all our days. He provides all that he requires My dear friends, there's a deep, deep love of Jesus, and that should stir our hearts, that we sing his praise and keep his ways. Amen? Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we do marvel at the deep, deep love of Christ. We do marvel that the love of Christ was central, and that night in the upper room as Jesus was with the men of same spirit as we are, uh, bickering about who is the greatest, and yet he stooped to wash their feet. Father, we thank you that Christ has done more than washed our feet, but he has gone to the cross. He's laid down his life. He's suffered the death that we deserve. He he has uh, borne the wrath that should have fallen upon us. Lord, we have every reason to uh, rest in this sure knowledge of the love of Christ for his own. Lord, grant us growing faith, great faith, to rest in Christ who loves us. And indeed, Lord, grant us 
a greater love for our beloved and in that love a greater obedience that we might live for the praise and the glory of our God and King. Father, these days when the church is uh, fickled, uh, wandering, seemingly unanchored, O Lord, give us eyes to see the love of Christ, that we might be recalibrated and restored to come back to live for him who died for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together. We're going to sing number 535. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus.